Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are just days away from the November 3rd election. And so this really has me thinking back to how six years ago I started working on a book about politics because I was alarmed that Democrats and progressives didn't properly appreciate the larger lessons of what Obama's election represented, how he won, and what they needed to do to withstand and beat back the attacks of those who do not want this country to become a democracy in color. My book, Brown is the New White, came out in 2016, and I spent all that year traveling, writing, speaking, trying to share the lessons learned and best practices. For a number of reasons, obviously we lost that year and have endured a nightmare even worse than what I'd feared or imagined. But now we are just days away from hopefully bringing that nightmare to an end. And I'm sure for all of us that that day cannot come soon enough. We are all desperate to know if we are, in fact, going to invict the interloper in this country's Oval Office. And we want that information as fast as we can possibly get it. And so in that spirit, this podcast will help you sift through the mountains of stories, information, and data to determine which data points we should be watching on election night and when we will start to get relevant information. Specifically, what are the key things to look for on Tuesday? Joining me for this conversation is podcast co-host Charlene Chang, who started with me on this journey as my book coach and editor back in 2014, and has been with me through all the ups and downs and twists and turns along the way. Hi, Charlene. What a time, and hopefully the end of this dark phase is in sight. Hey, Steve. Yes, definitely, hopefully. And these past few days, I've just been trying to both stay hopeful, stay calm, also trying to get into a type of Zen mindset, telling myself, you know what, no matter what happens, the fight goes on. And there's so many people on our side doing everything they can to make this country better. And regardless of what happens, we need to continue that fight because it doesn't end on November 30 either way. So I'm really just trying to hold all those, uh, trying to stay balanced. Good time to put that meditation practice to use. But it is really hard to believe that election day is so close and it's, you know, nearing and almost upon us that basically starting from this moment from when our episode goes live, there are only five more days until election day. And I I just can't believe it. Like, Steve, do you remember when November 3rd, 2020 seemed so far away? (laughs) Yeah, I remember the presidential started January 2019 in terms of the campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seemed like, okay, that that seems like so far off. But do you remember what I kind of think about as the early days, the kind of slightly glory days of 2017, when you had talked about, others had talked about the possibility that Trump might even get impeached and removed, that basically he might not even serve out his full four years. Right. And here we are. And the way I've been feeling also lately is because it's Halloween season and those of us, especially with kids, it's really been, you know, every day it's like, oh, Halloween's coming, Halloween's coming. So it's for me, it's like adding to the spookiness of the atmosphere, right. like the stressfulness. It feels like, you know, you have uh, people have on their lawns like these pictures, like, you know, different kinds of creepy things hanging up you know, decorating their house. And I, I just kind of feel like, okay, that gives me the chills, but so does the the, the, the thought of like, what's going to happen on November 3rd. And basically like what's scarier, witches and goblins or Trump and, you know, Mitch McConnell. 
So this is the Halloween season that I'll remember where everything just feels a little scary or more nerve wracking. So in terms of today's episode, I know that we want to give our listeners proper orientation for Election Day. And Steve, I know that you have some thoughts you wanted to share first on that front. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what's on your mind? Yeah, it's kind of like what you were saying about this. Uh, Whatever happens, uh, things are going to go on and trying to be a little bit more, um, you know, either not just Zen. That's not my word. It's not my brand. Let me <laughs> um, That's my brand. <laughs> yes. It's kind of what you were saying about how whatever happens on November 3rd, we're going to go on and really trying to situate ourselves in that kind of framework and context and perspective. And it really brings me back to, there's this, there's this phrase that Jesse Jackson said 30 years ago at this meeting I was in with him that's really affected me and gave me a sense of perspective all these years. Um, it was 1989. And we were in Sacramento for a march in education reform. We were up in Maxine Waters' office. Maxine was in the state legislature then. And we were waiting to go out, out on stage. And then Elihu Harris, who was Oakland's uh, assemblyman at the time, I remember him saying to Jesse, he says, Jesse, you must be so tired. You, you've flown back and forth across the country twice this week. And you've got this brutal schedule you keep up. And Jesse just looked at him and he says, beats picking cotton. And that was so affected by that framing that, I actually bought a large photograph of African-Americans picking cotton in the fields and put it up on my wall to remind me of this larger context and history of the struggle. I mean, amusing side note to that is that now I'm like showing how down I am and connected to folks picking cotton. And then when Shirley Burke came to work with us in the office, I remember her saying to me, oh, did you used to pick cotton? My family did. I did. And I, so I'm all trying to like be all down and progressive. And surely like was actually out in the fields picking wow. cotton. So I, had, I, a, I didn't know that about you. Yes, that was another uh, reality check there. But I share this story because that's the context of this election. Trump got elected on a wave of support from people who never relinquished the goals of the Confederacy, which is to make this a white nation. And he's done everything he can to make this country white again. And so whatever happens next week, the struggle to create a multiracial democracy will not be won, and we will have to continue the fight that stretches back to the time when my people were brought to this country to pick cotton and create wealth for others. So having said that, in terms of the scenarios for what happens next week, I think things could go one of three ways, right? First, there's the grand scenario, um, which is not at all unrealistic that we could see a rerun of 2008. When Obama was declared the winner at 11 p.m. Eastern time, people rushed out in the streets and danced in celebration. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, um, uh, Shindy Maxton, texted that day. She says, what is the opposite of a riot? Mm. All these people went down to the White House full of hope and love, but also, yeah. And so that was 08. The other scenario, which is uh, not that long ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday, is a rerun of 2000, when the election was called for George W. Bush, then uncalled, and then we had weeks of battles at the counting votes and the county level, and then fights out in the courts, and all the courts, Supreme Court. But it was clearly an unresolved matter and went on for weeks and weeks, and that was not very far away from our history. And then the third scenario is what I call the 1876 fight, which was the contested election after the Civil War after the 10 years of reconstruction to try to bring African-Americans to some level of equality in this country. 
And it was a very closely fought election, and that resulted in the Hayes-Tilden Compromise that abandoned Reconstruction and basically turned the South back over to the former slaveholders. And so that, frankly, is the scenario where Trump and the Republicans steal the election. But it's also, the, you know, like I say, the kind of thing we've been here in all of these different scenarios before fighting these fights throughout the course of our history. And so that's just to kind of orient ourselves. I mean, I am hopeful, I'm quite hopeful, actually, that it's going to go well um, on Tuesday. All the indications are that there is a, you know, we had talked about the return of the majority um, in terms of the framing we did in the second edition of the book. And all the indications are that the new American majority that elected and reelected Obama is coming back out in full force and manifesting itself. So I'm fairly quite hopeful around it. But, you know, we'll, these folks are, will stop at nothing. And so the good news on that front is that there are a lot of people preparing for this contested election scenario. And specifically, there's a group called Protect the Results, and it's a coalition of more than 50 progressive community-based organizations, uh, Community Change Action, Indivisible, uh, groups in Arizona, all over the country. And they're preparing to mobilize people all over the country if necessary. And so you can learn more about them and get, be part of that effort at protecttheresults.com. But hopefully it won't come to that, um, but it's good to know that they're there and that there are folks who are organizing now to be ready in case things don't go the right way, but hopefully they will. And that's what we're going to discuss on this pod. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully they will. But I'm listening to you and thinking this is how low the bar is now, right? I mean, on one hand, I'm just so grateful that there are um, these organizations coming together, this group you're talking about, protect the results. But this is like actually the baseline, which is we're just trying to ensure a fair election and ensure that the results are recognized for what they are. And this is why we've talked about this in a previous episode. ESD, election stress disorder, is so real. Is because um, in past times, if an election season was stressful, there are all these layers to what's happening now. Again, just that the bar in terms of what we are minimally trying to protect, which is basic fundamental pillar of democracy, is is stressful in, in all the different scenarios. And people are having flashbacks to 2016. We don't want to get caught off guard. We don't want to let ourselves feel hopeful, let our guard down, and then be totally caught off guard on election night. I just still remember the numbers coming in on to 2016 election night. And because I had very naively just thought Hillary was going to sweep and win. Well, every single person <laughs> in the country, including Donald Trump, thought that what was going to happen. And I was seeing the numbers going in. I turned to my husband going, I was watching it on TV and going, what, what am I seeing? Like, what's going on? Right. And just in shock and confusion. So, Steve, basically what I'm saying is today in today's episode, we really want to help people with not having to go through that experience again, arming them with some tools and better understanding and things to look for and just helping them with coping mechanisms. So in addition to you know, people looking right now for drinks, <laughs> drink recipes, like some of my friends are saying, what are you gonna drink? I, mean, I don't know if you're getting, <laughs> I know you don't really drink, I don't either, but my friends do. They're texting me like, should we have like a drink watch party and what should the, let's make up a drink. That's and, hilarious. Yeah, so we can drink together on election night. And either the drink will be for celebration or to drown our woes and either way it'll be helpful. So, but really, Today, what we're trying to do is give people other types of guidance, political analysis and tips that will help them through the night, help them make sense of what they're going to be seeing as the results come in next Tuesday. So with that, let's turn to what specifically we should all be looking at 
to see if things are unfolding as they should that night. I know, Steve, you've been working with our favorite data scientist, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, crunching a lot of data about what votes will come in from which states and at what time of night and what indicators will signal good news, bad news, etc. So let's see if we can get Dr. Julie on the line right now. for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hi, this is Julie. Hi, Julie. Thanks for joining us. We wanted to see if you could help us identify which pieces of election night data are going to be most important to watch for. I know it'll be a lot of things going on. People might feel overwhelmed. So you're here to help us really kind of zero in on what we should be watching for. I know you've been crunching a lot of data because you posted a huge spreadsheet in our Slack channel. And I remember you attaching a big file that contains information to inform us on what to watch and um, my analysis. To which I replied, uh, Julie, you lost me at big file. <laughs> it was huge. <laughs> yes. Hey, Julie, yeah. You, you, you know that you're in for a data treat from Julie when there are more columns in the spreadsheet than there are letters in the alphabet. And then the columns start being labeled AA, AB, et cetera. And I, I had clicked on the link and my screen did this thing. It popped up. Maybe it's done before and I never noticed. But there was a little message that popped up that said something like, you are previewing the first, you know, 25 pages of this spreadsheet. And I, I just immediately closed it because I was like, yeah, I've got to wait and I'm going to get the cliff notes. <laughs> That's what we appreciate about Julie. So first, Steve, can you frame up how you went about trying to look at this? And then Julie... Can you then dive into the details and also let us know what's the actual purpose of this giant spreadsheet you created and what were you looking for? Yeah, so just in terms of framing it up, I asked you to look at two questions. Um, and so first is what will early election results tell us about the voting patterns of key groups and specifically those groups that were the core components of Trump's 2016 coalition in terms of is he holding that or is it eroding as the pre-election polling is indicating? And then the second question is what time of night will we know that information? So just in terms of that first question about what we'll learn about key groups, just a, a couple of things to, to hold in mind, right? And so first, as we were talking about how just unimaginably destructive these past four years have been, and it's not the kind of thing you think that somebody who just barely snuck into office would do or how they would conduct themselves. But what is critical to remember that his 2016 margin was razor thin, lost the popular vote nationally by 3 million votes, did not get a majority even in the states that gave him the Electoral College. And so that's a key thing to remember. Since 2016 is that lots of the whites who took a chance on him have recoiled in horror and moved on to support Democrats. And so that's the trend that we're going to be trying to see is that playing itself out in the results that come in. And then also then in terms of this framing and this complex metaphor of the return of the majority, return of the new American majority, we are seeing it play itself out. And is it going to continue? And so the early vote and absentee vote numbers are just off the charts, right? In Houston, for example, more people have already voted one week before the election than voted in total in 2016. That's incredible. It's amazing. And so Democrats are, are going to post historic numbers. And so the dominant question is going to be, will Trump's voters come out in even larger numbers than they did in 2016? 
It'll have to be especially large numbers to offset the defections that the Republicans are facing. So that's the kind of the core components of what we were actually trying to get at when I asked Julia to try to tease out in terms of the analysis. And then we're we're going to be distilling all this information into kind of a play along at home chart um, that will be accessible through the Democracy in Color website. So that page is live now and you can go and bookmark it for election night. So you can go to democracyincolor.com forward slash election and bookmark that page. And then we'll be giving regular updates on what information is coming in and what it means in terms of the how the election is likely to be going. And it'll also be featured on our, hope, our homepage at uh, democracyandcolor.com. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve, for that framework. Also, actually, let's step back for a second. I had a quick question, just so we're all really clear, Steve, if you can help explain what the differences are between absentee voting, early voting, and day of voting. So just real quick, absentee voting is basically the mail-in vote. You're at home, the ballot gets mailed to you, you fill it out at home, you mail it back in. Early voting is where you physically go to a polling place. Often it's the county, there's different places in different states, how they've got it set up. But you physically go and cast your vote, but you do that before November 3rd. And then election day is uh, November 3rd, where you just show up at the vote. So that's absentee, early, and day of. All right, thanks for that. So, okay, now that we've got all that, Julie, what should we be watching for on election night? So first, I'd say what we should not do is get overly excited about the early vote or the absentee numbers in general, right? So as Steve said, most of Biden's voters are voting early. We are already seeing that, right? And most of Trump's voters are planning to vote on election day, or at least that's what he's encouraging them to do. And that's because, of course, Democrats realize that there's a pandemic in this country and that voting from home is far safer, while Trump's voters are trying to defy the virus. And plus, we see Trump attacking the whole vote by mail process as fraudulent, right? And it's part of his overall voter suppression scheme that he's running, right? And we're also seeing record turnout, though, in terms of early votes. That doesn't mean that Trump's votes won't also come out in large numbers on Tuesday. And if we all sort of sit back and recall, that's actually what happened in Georgia in 2018, where Democratic votes were historically large, right? But Republicans also had historically large turnout. So that, along with voter suppression, was what determined the governor's race. Yes. And, and, and let's not lose to history that the person counting the votes was the person running f- for that election uh, <laughs> and yeah, who yeah, that's purged right. hundreds detail. of thousands of voters <laughs> from the rolls in an election decided mm-hmm. by 50,000 votes. But we get the point. So please continue. Yes. So there was that minor matter of massive voter suppression involved there. But back to interpreting what happens next week. So until we know the size of the total turnout on Tuesday and what percentage of that vote Trump is getting, we won't really have enough information to make accurate projections of where we'll end up when all is said and done. And so that's why the early vote numbers can be a false sign of strength and people should just be prepared for that to guard against it. So what Steve and I have done is to try to identify which actual election returns will give us a good picture of what's happening throughout the night. And we've uh, broken it down by a few key states and counties, and then we've cross-referenced that with what time of the night we should expect meaningful numbers to be coming through. 
Great. Thanks so much, Julie. Okay, so now that I know I'm going to be stressing out pretty much every hour, if not every minute of next Tuesday until it's over, let's break it down chronologically. What are the first numbers we should all be looking for and when will they come in? The first numbers should start coming in between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm going to be looking at two specific places. So the first is Sumter County, Florida and then the North Carolina statewide results is the second. So Florida's polls close at 7 p.m. and the polls close in North Carolina at 7.30. I'm curious, why Florida? And what will those places tell us? Yeah, let me just say a couple of things about Florida overall in terms of its strategic significance and on interpreting these results. So we'll know a lot from Florida early for three reasons, right? So first, the polls there are among the first to close in the country. It's about as east as you can get in the east coast second they're actually pretty good and fast at counting absentee ballots and early vote tallies and state law allows them to start counting absentee ballots before election day so they can release the results from a good chunk of their voters pretty quickly and third the electoral college math is such that basically trump can't win without florida Biden could actually win the White House without Florida, right? So Clinton lost Florida, but if she'd won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where she collectively lost by 77,000 votes, she'd still have won the White House without Florida. But the Republican path is much narrower. So if Trump is losing Florida, he's likely lost the election. And that also plays into both the uh, how he's doing and when it's reported earlier in terms of this larger national narrative that the media is going to be putting out and that Trump's going to be putting out about what's happening and that it'll make it more or less possible for Trump to sow confusion and then try to steal the election. So if he's behind in a critical state that he needs right away, then his options for chaos and theft are diminished. So I get it. We should just, you know, those of us who do like intentional work and uh, what do you call it, visual visualization, which is just visualize Florida, <laughs> like, come on, Florida. And I think it's amazing that basically what you, you're telling me, you know, what I'm learning is that one county in Florida will be able to tell us quite a lot that night. And that that one county is a pretty big deal in terms of the numbers and, and how they vote. Julie, I was wondering if you can explain a little bit more about why this county is so important. So in a nutshell, Sumter will tell us how much Trump's support has eroded or how much it's holding up among older voters. And then by extension, what are Trump's prospects overall? So Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report is the one who deserves credit for flagging this bellwether county. And Wasserman's the expert on congressional races. He has a very granular knowledge of the composition of local districts. Sumter is an excellent avatar for older voters overall in that it's a retirement community in Florida and has the highest median age of its residents of any county in the whole country, which is 69 years old. It's overwhelmingly white, 85%. And it's the kind of place that he needs to really run up the score in order to win statewide. And if we look back to 2016, Trump won there by more than a two to one margin. So in terms of the dichotomy between in-person votes and mail-in votes, 84% of the county's residents voted by mail in 2016. So once that first wave of Sumter results comes in, it'll say a lot about which scenario we're heading towards. What Steve described as the 2008, 2000, or 1876 scenarios that he'll tell you more about. <laughs> 
So my question is, listening uh, to what you just laid out, since that demographic is overwhelmingly older and white, wouldn't you know what the chances are very high that he's going to win that county? Oh yes, we expect that he's going to win, but so it's a bit more nuanced than that. So what Wasserman projects, and I think he's right in his analysis here, is that if Trump isn't winning Sumter County by at least two to one next Tuesday, he's in trouble. Right. And that's even among those absentee votes because there's such a large share of the overall votes that'll come in. Right. It's not going to have election day to save him. So, what Wasserman says, quote, if we see Sumter mail and early results at 7 p.m. that come in something like 62% to 37% for Trump with more than 75,000 ballots counted, I'd personally consider that to be game over for the president. And he goes on to say, if on the other hand, we see Sumter mail and early results come in at something like 66 to 33% for Trump, we're likely talking about a very close race in Florida, and it's going to be a much longer night before we know. That's the end quote there. And that's going to impact on, you know, what we'll know by the end of the, the evening. Yeah, and that's the part of politics that I don't think a lot of people understand broadly is that there's the question of the margins in these conservative areas is super important. And that was really important in the Georgia and Florida in 2018. And so they're going to win them. But if you can cut into those margins in all these different places, then it reduces their overall total share. And that really is the fundamental dynamic really across much of the South and Southwest. You have these urban areas, Ron Brownstein, the uh, Atlantic and CNN journalist writes about this a lot. You've got these urban, more diverse areas where the Democrats are much stronger, but then you've got lots of small rural areas where the Republicans run up these huge margins. And so if you can cut into those margins, it makes a big impact cumulatively on the election. And that's what Wasserman's flagging in terms of Sumter. Yeah, no, I just, I'm amazed, like those margins that we're talking about, those numbers are, the difference is going to be so small yet makes such a huge difference. Um, really interesting. We're going to link in the show notes the article by Wasserman that was published by NBC News on October 15th, and it's titled, Will Trump Win Again? Watch Florida's Sumter County for First Election Night Clue. Okay, so that's 7 p.m. Eastern and Florida, specifically Sumter County. Julie, you also said North Carolina. What should we be looking for there? So the second thing we want to be looking for is what percentage of the total vote is going to third-party candidates specifically the Libertarian and Green Party candidates. So a completely underappreciated dynamic from 2016, and Steve's written a lot about this, is the relatively huge number of people who switched from supporting Obama in 2012 to backing the Libertarian or the Green Party candidate in 2016. Right. So I call that Obama Johnstein voters, right? Gary Johnson was the uh, Libertarian candidate and Jill Stein was the Green Party. Everyone's all obsessed with, you know, Obama Trump voters and they were the key to flip the election, which is not empirically sound, that analysis. But we do know that lots of people, particularly in places like Wisconsin, switched. And so that's a key demographic to track. And that's an element we'll know soon on election night, how large that is. Exactly. So in state after state, the support for those third and fourth parties increased in 2016 by 300%, 400%. In several states, that increase for the third and fourth parties was larger than Trump's margin of victory in that state. And that was the case in most of the close states. So Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and it was almost the case in North Carolina. So while the current polls out there right now are clearly 
indicating that third and fourth party candidates are not going to get a lot of votes this cycle. It will be important to confirm that with the early data that we see coming in. And if the third and fourth party total share of the vote is closer to something like two or three percent instead of four percent or higher, as we saw last time around, then that's going to be good news for Biden. And it suggests that the Democratic vote is holding and also indicates that those polls showing that he's leading in these states are indeed accurate. So in North Carolina, the libertarian Joe Jorgensen and the Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins are uh, on the ballot. They didn't get on the ballots in all states, but they are there in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, so the Libertarians on in most of the states, the Green Party, the Green Party, not nearly as many, nearly as many as Jill Stein um, in twenty sixteen, and then it also just you know it just highlights the absurdity. And you have these pictures of these like conservative white Republican lawyers running around to courthouses desperately trying to get Kanye West on the ballot in as many states as possible because they know this point about how the vote got split in 20 in 2016. And so that's just another of the long, long line of absurdities of this election. Julian or Steve, what do we know right now about how those folks who had voted for third or fourth party in 2016 are voting this time around? So NBC News uh, reported that in their polling, people who voted for third or fourth party candidates back in 2016 are now breaking two to one for Biden. And that's just more evidence why a small third or fourth party share of all votes is going to be a good indicator for Biden. Oh, that's that's good news. Good to hear. Okay, so we've covered 7 p.m. Eastern. Let's move ahead. And again, that's already a lot to look for uh, around that hour. What happens after that? What should we watch for as we continue? 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern, so I continue to keep my eye on the percentage of the vote going to the third and fourth party candidates as the polls close. And that's especially true in Wisconsin, where the Obama John Steen voters definitely cost Clinton that state. And in Wisconsin, those third and fourth party voters were nearly 6.5% of all the votes cast in Wisconsin in 2016. So we want to see that number going down this time around. The polls close in Wisconsin at 9 p.m. Eastern. And while the overall trends may take a while to report out, we'll at least be able to get some indications of what percentage of those votes are going to the third and fourth parties. And that'll be a very useful data point for us early on in the evening around 9 p.m. And also at 9 p.m., the polls are going to close in Texas. So in Texas, I'm going to be looking at rural counties where Trump won by huge margins to see how large that turnout is, sort of the Texas version of those Sumter counties. We already know that turnout has increased in places like Houston, right? It's a huge city, one of the biggest counties, and um, Democrats are poised to pick up an additional 500,000 votes in those urban areas. So we want to be looking for whether that rural, strong Trump counties are going to have a commensurate increase or if they'll you know, stay more at their levels that we saw in 2016. So that'll be something to be um, gauging as we look at what Texas results look like. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing we're going to be oh, have on the uh, Democracy in Color uh, website page link there. Looking at, we're trying to find which counties in Texas are kind of the equivalent of that Sumter in Florida. And so we'll post that and we'll be tracking that as the, as the night goes on. All right. So we've covered seven o'clock Eastern, eight, nine. What about 10 p.m. Eastern? Anything happening or can 
I and my family go for a walk, or can I light some candles and start uh, pray, praying to the election gods? <laughs> we probably need to light the candles early that morning, to be honest. Uh, the main results that will be coming in at 10 p.m. are from Iowa and Nevada. And there's been some concern that Trump could be competitive in Nevada, even though Democrats have won it in each of the last several elections. So we just want to see how those results are looking, confirm that they stay on track as clearly on the Democratic side. And then um, we want to see what are the numbers in Iowa that come in. So it's one of the very few actual swing states in the country. It went for Obama twice, and then it went for Trump by 10 points. So we'll want to just be looking at what those early numbers look like coming out of Iowa. And the polling averages in Iowa right now show Biden leading by 1.2%, which, you know, I don't think that's even, I think that's within the margin of error. So it's, it, they're just in a dead heat right now. Got it. And then we come on to 11 p.m. Eastern. What happens then? Well, that in terms of the 2008 scenario is when we got the announcement, right? I mean, I'll never forget uh, 2008 watching MSNBC and Brian Williams coming on right at 11 p.m. Eastern, their fancy graphic saying NBC News can now project that Barack Obama will be the next president of the United States. So we'll have a good sense by then because all of the other states that Julia was talking about once they close at seven, eight, and nine will be continuing to report. And so we'll, have, we'll certainly have a sense of, is this a blowout or are we in for a long night and possibly a long few days or weeks? And there is so much like doom and gloom. They do just want to say that a blowout in Biden's favor is not unrealistic and would not surprise me, actually. So I just want us to have some of that to hold on to in addition to all the angst and uh, pain that we're feeling right now. Right. Good, good point to remember. So another thing that's going to happen at 11 p.m. is that Arizona usually reports its first numbers at that hour. And that's going to be key because of how organized they are and how much data we'll get in one batch. They've already counted 1 million votes in Maricopa County, which is the county that Phoenix is situated within. And that's 75% of the total votes cast in all of 2016. So they haven't just received those votes. They've actually already opened those ballots and counted them. So they'll dump a ton of results shortly after the polls close, um, probably, you know, 1115 Eastern time. And that's just going to be um, another really important you know, set of data points for folks to look at. Trump won Maricopa in 2016 by three points. And just a couple of years later, there was a seven point swing in the other direction as Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat who was elected to the U.S. Senate in that year, 2018, uh, won the county by four points. So the early results coming out of Maricopa County will be very telling about Trump's prospects in Arizona overall. Yeah, Maricopa was actually a huge percentage of Arizona, period. It's like, you know, two thirds of all the votes in the uh, state are in that county. Mm -hmm. So it certainly sounds like we're in for a busy night. There's so many uh, different things to pay attention to, but now I feel like I have a, a way to focus. So I really appreciate that. I did want to just get a quick sense and talk real briefly about the Senate races, because we don't want to forget about the Senate races. So what should we be watching for there? Yeah. So again, remember that Democrats need to win four seats. Um, they're probably going to lose Alabama. So we need a net gain of three plus the White House um, uh, in order to, to take control. So I think the main thing to keep to look at is, are the Senate results tracking the presidential? And, and I 
overall, we are engaged in this major struggle in this country. And we talked about in the last podcast, the this election is going to be a referendum on this president. Um, and hopefully, and the polling is suggesting that those who have enabled him as well. And so that's the main thing to see is, are they tracking? And then particularly in terms of Arizona, Colorado, which are the most likely to flip. And then similarly, North Carolina, Maine, and Iowa, I think people would argue are some of the states that Democrats have the strongest, most likely chance. I mean, a lot is in play. There could actually be a big run-up of Democrats. And so the other kind of set of states really to look at, Montana, Texas, Alaska, South Carolina, but each of those races is actually somewhat you know, complicated in terms of their, their prospects and their dynamics. There are two Senate races in Georgia, and I and I've only fully begun to appreciate. I knew that one of them, Ronald Reverend Warnock, was likely to go to a runoff. If you don't get fifty percent, it would be a runoff. But because there's a libertarian candidate in the other race, with John Ossoff running against uh, Senator Purdue, that race may go to uh, a runoff, and then neither of them might get fifty percent. Neither of them is getting fifty percent in the current polling. So you could have two runoffs on January fifth that will really dominate the political landscape for uh, two months, because in some sense, this uh, control of the Senate could be at stake. Um, but there's definitely going to be uh, one runoff for Reverend Wannock's race, and then quite possibly the other one with Asif as well. So that's the other piece. And so that will unlikely to be determined on Tuesday. All right. I know we're getting to the end of our show. Julian, Steve, before we leave, I wanted to have us, we'll have you guys play a quick game that I just made up. <laughs> I'm going to call it Swing State Gut Check. Basically, I'll name a state and you guys tell me who you think will win that state. Let's Sounds do it. Good. Okay, okay. Putting ourselves on, what they say, on wax. <laughs> All right. So, Michigan. Julie and then Steve, you guys go in that turn. Michigan. Biden. <laughs> Biden. Wisconsin. Biden. Biden. Might take a while, though. Pennsylvania. Biden. Biden, I think, would be the closest of those three. Interesting. Yeah. So those are the those make up uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Those make up the infamous Midwestern Blue Wall that collapsed in 2016. So I feel very hopeful that you guys feel relatively confident that uh, those will go Biden. Arizona. Oh, this is harder. I um, these are harder. I'm going to say Biden. <laughs> Biden. Ready? Florida. Uh, Biden. Sumter Ooh. County, Florida. <laughs> I think Biden wins Florida. Interesting, you guys. We'll have to we'll hold you to this. And, <laughs> and, you know, as some of my friends say from uh, your lips to God's ears, right? <laughs> Ohio. I think Trump's going to hold that one. It's my home state. Oh, Se Steve. <laughs> Senator Sherrod Brown accused me of abandoning Ohio, but I think it's going to, yeah, Trump. All right. now And then your turn next, uh, Julie. Texas. Oh, so now my home state. Yes, exactly. <sighs> I think it's going to be Trump. Yeah, super We're going to get close, though. Yeah, super close, but I think it's Trump. Which is exciting, not to be taken for granted. Even super close is good Good news in itself. Iowa. Uh, I'm going to say Trump. I'm going to say Biden, and I would commend people back to our one of our very first podcasts where we talked about Iowa. And I just think that they went from... Obama twice to swung over to Trump, and I think they're that they're likely to swing back. All right, North Carolina. I think Biden's going to do it. Mm. Biden squeaks through. Mm. 
Okay, and last state, state we talk about a lot, Georgia. I think Biden's going to get it this time. Ooh. I think Biden wins Georgia. Wow, you guys. All right. Hopefully he pulls those Senate seats with him. <laughs> that was super fun. Thank you. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to hold you guys to it. I'm very excited <laughs> about I like your will. predictions. I like, I like your predictions. And we shall know soon. Yes, we will. So that's what we've got for you to get you through election night. It's all the time we have for this episode. As I mentioned, we've got this online guide for how to follow the election results. It's available now at democracyandcolor.com. If you're not yet subscribed to the Democracy in Color email list, uh, you're missing out. And you can subscribe at democracyandcolor.com. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier and recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. And I'll close by leaving, as you know by now, I've been listening to podcasts, I have swirling around in my head an endless supply of Jesse Jackson quotes, and I'll leave you with this one. One of the very first speeches I ever heard him give back in 1984 presidential campaign. He was speaking metaphorically about the Rainbow Coalition. And I really think that that coalition is reasserting itself in this country. And so Jesse says, when you see a rainbow, feel good about it. A rainbow is a combination of rain and sunshine, timing and temperature, tears and joy. When you see a rainbow, feel good about it. Because at the end of the rainbow is a pot of gold. Here's to us all finding our national pot of gold on Tuesday. Until next time, keep the faith.